checking. Yo. Mr. Anderson. Yeah. How you doing, Peter? Good. You sitting down? Hold on. Uh oh. I mean, yeah, but no. I mean, not not. I mean, there's editing. If if that's what you're asking. Oh, you edit this? Well, I cut out the bit at the front and a bit at the end. And sometimes when there are bits in the middle, uh, I'll bleep them out. Why do you bleep? Oh, uh, you know, uh, in one case, I remember there was a a particular customer who was like, ah, you know, there was a thing said. I'm not sure if this other person would be comfortable. Can we cut that out? I was like, yeah, whatever. It's like the guest really has like curatorial say. But ultimately, nothing really gets cut out. I mean, that, no, that's why no one listens. Right. And that's... Uh, how can you, can you hear me? Is this okay? Is this going to work? Uh, my, 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 my modus operandi here is like, if I could hear you, odds are you're heard. You're being heard. And if I misunderstand you, odds are, you know, you're... You know, you're... Yeah, you're everything, every, everything's you're pretty. Podcast. If you'd like. Are you, you, you ready? Yeah, we're doing okay. Yeah. You sitting down? I'm sitting down. That's great. Uh, all right. Well, I like to kick these things off with a question in two parts. Uh, two. Of, uh, please name two of your favorite albums and two of your favorite movies of all time. They don't have to be the top or most favorite, but they do have to be uh, a couple that you go to uh, uh, every once in a while in your life. Uh, two albums and two films. Go ahead. Well, albums. That's interesting. I'll give you some some very kind of like weirdly specific stuff, I guess. Uh, anytime it rains, um, I tend to listen to two albums. So I feel like, you know, if you can predict what I listen to based upon weather, you know what I mean? That's yeah. Significant, no? Yeah, uh, when it rains, I, I'm partial to Radiohead. I don't know how that happened, but it happens. So I will name my two big rainy day albums. Okay. Two of my favorites. Um, the Clientele, Strange Geometry. Okay. And um, Brian Eno, Another Green World. Okay. Interesting. You don't like that one? You no. don't like Another Green World now? I, I, I like... Uh, Another Green World, but more importantly, I've heard of it. I haven't heard of this other strange geometry. Uh, that doesn't happen very often when someone mentions something I haven't heard, and I like that. That's good. That's something to listen to. <laughs> you haven't heard of the clientele, huh? They're like, uh, I think Strange Geometry came out in 2005. They're like an indie band, you know? I feel like I might have seen the name around, but I really can't say I've ever heard it. And that album is it's like very drenched in reverb. And it was actually interesting because I saw them in concert and, uh, you know, at, at uh, the satellite. And um, it was, like, interesting hearing them without a, uh, like, without their, the, the production of their albums. They were still good, but it was just, like, different. It was very, and they, they did a cover of, um, they did a cover of uh, Big Star uh, Nighttime, which was really cool. Okay. They could cover um, and then, uh, favorite, two favorite movies. I'm going to give you three favorite movies that are all childhood favorites that contain a singular theme that I realized they had this connection that I was attracted to as a viewer. So how's that? 
Yeah, that sounds great. Okay, so the three films, um, in in chronological order based upon their releases, are uh, Auntie Mame, uh, 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 Sword in the Stone, and uh, Real Genius. Now, all three of these films, so uh, Auntie Mame is Rosalind Russell. Um, it was also musicalized as, the, as Mame with, uh, with Lucille Ball, I believe, in the 70s. But Auntie Mame um, is, is Rosalind Russell from the late 50s. Um, uh, Sword in the Stone is a Disney animated film from the early 60s. And it's sort of like a B Disney movie, in a sense. You know, it wasn't like one of their like big... Um, animated films. Yeah, it's one of the and great ones no one really talks about. That? Yeah, it's one of the great ones no one really talks about. Well, we'll get into that. Yeah. Then Real Genius is uh, Martha Coolidge directed it. It's a uh, it's sort of a teen comedy ish, but like very specific settings. Teen, teen comedy starring Val Kilmer um, from yeah from 1984. So the the reason that I so I, I, I grew up with Real Genius. It was always playing in my house. I grew up with Sword in the Stone. It was always playing. Auntie Mame was a little later. It was more in like my early teens, probably. I started watching that one. And, and I was attracted to all three. All three of them have this situation in which a young man, a young boy, um, is, is mentored by someone who encourages him to be a, a person of, uh, uh, who thinks critically and is open-minded and um, is is you know engaged with the world? And I guess I always responded with that to that theme of like a mentor who kind of like helps you realize that you know in life you can't be uptight. In life you have to be somebody who's open to everything and open to uh, new ideas and critical thinking and stuff like that. Um, Auntie Mame is the character in Auntie Mame. Uh, who is like that, and then in uh, Sword of the Stone, it's Merlin, and then uh, Val Keller plays Chris Knight in uh, in Real Genius, and he's that kind of figure. And, um, you know, I would say also that, like, my personality, my sense of humor was heavily shaped by Val Kilmer uh, playing Chris Knight in, in Real Genius. It's, it's, that movie has, like, some of the greatest dialogue of all time. It was written by Pat Proft and Neil Israel, who who I think might have co-written some Zazz productions, maybe. Um, What's Zazz productions? What? What 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 are Zazz productions? Uh, Zucker, Abram Zucker. Uh, oh, okay. Pain and Top Secret, maybe. I might be wrong about that. All right. Well, that's but, that's quite uh, interesting. It's very revealing. Uh, I think of those three, Real Genius is the one that stands out as like a a, a bit different. But yeah, Val Kilmer is totally the uh, the mentor. Why is in that. it different? Now you're saying it's different. Well, it seems like Auntie Mame and Sword in the Stone are easily from the before time, and Real Genius is, in my mind, contemporary. Um. Like, well, maybe that, more contemporaneous would be the word, but but just like it's, I guess I don't. I don't think about it in those terms. I think about it in terms of like, you know, I mean, Real Genius came out, you know, a year after I was born. So I guess in that sense, it's from my lifetime. So yeah, maybe that does change it. But I really don't think of it in those terms. There's stories. And you either respond to a story or you don't. And Yeah, I get that. Stories, we tell stories over the course of time uh, that, you know, are similar. 
some stories, you know, sometimes it, things go in and out of fashion, obviously, of what we're interested in. But, uh, yeah, those three, three kind of, you know, those theme, that theme really resonated with me uh, in a way that I didn't necessarily, like, you know, recognize until later on in life. Right, right, but it's something that you came back to that you were like, oh, this is important. Um, I had a question. Uh, I lost the question. Oh, Real Genius was on TV all the time at your house. Was there any forbidden movies uh, growing up? You're, I should point out to anyone who anyone else who's listening that you are like the premier, among the premier movie guys that I know. Uh, in the sense that you can speak in very technical terms about movies uh, in a way that I really, that I can understand, but that it's totally lost in other people. But uh, was there a forbidden kind of movie? I remember growing up, I couldn't watch horror movies because I just wasn't allowed. Uh, adult movies were all right, but when the sex scenes comes up, my my my, hand, my eyes would be like you know covered by some hands. Um, I don't know if there was fast forwarding involved in my youth, but there was not, not a whole lot of movies for that kind of thing. And then my sister really had full reign as to what we were watching growing up because we would go to the video store. It was an event. And I, and I would occasionally get, like, a choice, but since I rarely had a choice, I would go back to old favorites, like, very safe favorites. So when it came time to, like, the, when The Mask came out or when Casper came out, I was frightened to death, like, of the concept of the film. Like, the, the box of The Mask was scary to me. But when a movie came on, I was like, okay, this is comfortable. When Casper started, I saw it on the big screen in Tijuana, and it was, like, the most frightening thing. I started crying. I had to leave. My aunt had to come for me, took me back in, and then it turns out everything was okay. But it was a very, like, very uh, harsh kind of, like, awakening in terms of, like, it's just a movie. There's nothing to worry about. You know, did you have any of that forbidden cinema in your house where it's just like, you can't watch this, Peter. You're too, you'll know, you don't get it, or you won't get it, or any of that? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, like, they'd be like, oh, you, you know, this is more of an adult movie, you shouldn't watch this kind of thing I don't I don't know that it was like all that you know they you know they were just riffing um I think that uh they I think it was more about like so I'll put it to you this way I do remember that my mother was very offended that I was watching Family Matters the Steve Urkel show once because she just like thought it was so dumb she was more concerned about shaming me for being dumb than than, like, anything, like, mature, you see? Yeah. Like, she has a real chip on her shoulder about what she perceives as being dumb. Well, there's also the dad character is a cop, and I know your mom's also a, a police, a law enforcement officer of some kind. She Was she then, and was she seeing, like, this show is belittling what I do kind of thing? God, no, she's not. No, she's no. not really a cop. That's also, I mean, I, I, I don't want to for her and her views on all of that. So That's I fair. Say much there. Sure. But suffice it to say, she couldn't care less about. You know, she loves detective movies and stuff like that. So I don't think she really. Uh, you know, she she enjoys the watching shows about crime, but I, I don't think she would even know that he's a cop. I think she just saw it was a dumb sitcom and didn't didn't doesn't like the idea of me watching a dumb sitcom. <laughs> um, all right. You have to realize her agenda is. She has a very NPR agenda at all times. She thinks that people who read are smart and people who don't read are dumb. And it's just like very like old school conceptions of intelligence versus stupidity. So 
So she's like very caught up in that. That's what she's obsessed with. She doesn't like being around, you know, dippy people as she calls them. Sure. And you have like a set of standards as well for like, you know, uh, for people. Where it's just like you, you probably won't stand for a lot of stupidity for too long before you have to leave the room because you're, you know, just, you know, you can't take yeah. it. I would say that I, unlike many people, uh-huh. I think that there are many different forms of intelligence. I think a lot of people That's... think, and it's probably a reaction to my mother, I, I think that you don't have to be an intellectual to be incredibly smart. I'll say that. You don't, well, you don't have, yeah, and you don't have to be, like, have all the right words in order to be an intellectual, I don't think. I mean, a lot of, you know, stupid-sounding well, people have said well, very smart so what things. What I'm saying is I'm using intellectual as a neutral term there. I'm saying that Fair. intellectual is a way to describe somebody. I know people who are intellectuals who are morons. So I'm not, I'm not saying intellectual in the sense of, I'm not equating intellectual to smart. I'm equating intellectual to somebody who perceives themselves and carries themselves in a way that's erudite or whatever, and that that means nothing, that has nothing to do with whether they're smart or not. You know, there, there are people who, you know, they have all the best credentials in the world, and I listen to them speak, and I say, this person should, nobody should listen to this person, they're a moron. <laughs> so, you know, that's, sure. I do have my particular standards, but I would say that they're based upon what, they're not based upon preconceived notions of intelligence, they're based right. on, like, the idea that anybody from any walk of life can be smart in any style that intelligence comes in. Yeah, well, that's just it. Particular standards. I, I can't nail down exactly what your standards are, but I always find it intriguing, the things you find intriguing, or a lot of the time, anyway. I know you turned me on to Jordan Peterson as a thinker, but uh, I don't know how uh, how committed you are to his politics or whatever it is. I mean, I forget these people even have politics until sometime later, but, but Jordan Peterson... Well, I... I... The Jordan Peterson stuff, I'd say that it's very strange to me because, like, he, you know, he supports universal health care. I mean, I don't know that he's particularly, I, he gets tagged as being conservative for some reason, which is what happens now. It's sort of like everybody has to be in one box or the other. Yeah, um, yeah. He certainly got into a lot of trouble involving uh, trans stuff and, and various very hot, hot topics. Um, but, no, I think that, uh, that he had some, some interesting ideas about the world, for sure. Um, uh, you know, just depends. I mean, I think that he was, I think that the value of somebody like him is he's talking to a lot of very lost young men yeah. who, you know, sit at home at their parents' base and playing video games all day. And it, it's the same thing. I guess I would also say something like Scientology. People want to beat up on Scientology, and I'm like, if somebody was a crackhead and they got taken into Scientology and now they're like, you know, doing doing dishes and chores and stuff. Yeah. Like, that's better than being a crackhead. I'm sorry. I, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, as much as it, it's, I mean, I think personally superstition is, is rather a healthy thing because I grew up with it. I've seen it work. Uh, and even though it sounds mis, like misleading or crazy, for some people, some cer- certain things work. And I think Scientology falls into that umbrella of like, the, the ideas sound nuts as hell, but there's, success stories coming out of that and you can't just you know discount him well, outright i would all I, I would also say that that like uh the the, the thing that uh like i was writing a script and I, I i was interested in a, in in the biblical themes in my script not religious at all the biblical themes like narratives you know yeah and i got interested in cain and abel so 
I was like, oh, doesn't Jordan Peterson go to the Bible? A lot of people have talked about his Bible stuff being really interesting. And I went and watched his thing about Cain and Abel. You don't have to believe a word. Uh, you don't have to be Christian. I'm not, you know, religious at all. But if you watch it, it's a really fascinating literary, philosophical, and theological, I guess, but mainly literary and philosophical breakdown of Cain and Abel. You don't have to be a Democrat or a Republican or liberal or conservative or whatever to watch it. It's nothing to do with politics. It's about a Bible story as a story, you know? So if you're mad that you disagree with him about, you know, uh, how, uh, you know, the, the, the trans issue, you know, I guess that's a deal breaker for you. Fine, don't watch it. You know, I don't know. Yeah, well, Bible stories are weird. I remember uh, I, 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 that Cain and Abel story in particular. I, I tried looking for it in the Bible, and I, I couldn't find it. So I, I kind of like had it's to... very short. I know. It, I had to stop, and I was just like, all right, I'm going to read this from the beginning. And it took me like a, a minute to get to that story, and it's just like, oh, fucking Genesis chapter chapter 4, or verse 4, and that's it. Like It's a, it's three lines of thing. Okay. And I was like, this is an elaborate story, I was told. It's, I know, I can see, vi-. and I think it's interesting, or it's more interesting, the children's Bible aspect of like people telling you the story, but they elaborate it with details and this and that. Uh, Jordan Peterson could take that little three lines and make something uh, he talks about, interesting talks out of about it. How, he talks about how short it is, and how much is packed into it. And there's a lot of stuff there that's kind of interesting. I don't know if you know the story, but one of the fascinating things about Cain and Abel is that when Cain, um, you know, goes on to, uh, 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 you know, um, uh, continue his family line, um, the <laughs> idea is that the descendants of Cain are the ones who made weapons of war. So it's kind of an interesting. I don't know. There's a lot. There's a lot in the details, even in that little bit of of the Bible. That's like right. Well, that's postscript to the uh, Cain and Abel thing. But that's that's bloody interesting. I didn't know that part. It's not really. I mean, it's postscript in one sense, but it's like it's in the Cain and Abel section of the Bible. It just okay. Says so I have to read further. <laughs> at the end of the story, it says the descendants of Cain. You know, and then there's the concept of the mark of Cain that there's. A group of people out there who bear the mark of Cain. Yeah. Um, it's kind of, it's just, I don't know, it's just a very interesting story. Uh, there's a lot to unpack. Yeah. Even in that small bit. And so, um, yeah, I, I mean, that was just, that was just to one example of like, you know, uh, somebody who's, who's controversial for political reasons that really it's like he has a whole other thing that he does um, that's kind of, you know, had nothing to do with the political part. Well, well, I'm not a disciple, but I am definitely drawn to it. And it's like, yeah, little things like that. You'll name drop, like, you know, things, and I'll be like, oh, that's interesting. I never heard of that. And I'll, there's always usually a really interesting aspect to it. But you, you, you're you going to need a little bit of a... I don't know, people easily fall into the disciplehood, you know, and, and I'm not really for that. Like, you know, um, Joe Rogan, for example. Like, people really like, oh, man, Joe Rogan really knows. It's like... He does sometimes, but sometimes he's really boring. Sometimes I don't get it. Sometimes I don't like the way he talks about certain things. It makes me uncomfortable sometimes. Everybody's got these aspects of things. Uh, who is well, I, I think the about? problem I have with people, I mean, like with Joe Rogan, I guess the point is, is that, you know, if you're super liberal and you're mad at him for having conservative people on, and if you're super conservative and you're mad for having for him having super liberal people on, like, I I don't, 
I don't know what you want. You know, right. you just want nobody to, to ever disagree with you ever. Is this the idea here? Is this the culture we're pushing? That there are certain ideas that are acceptable, that you get to choose what those ideas are. Anything outside that range is something where it's like that person's automatically evil for having that idea. So I, I guess like Joe Rogan is, is only as good as the guest he has on if he has an interesting guest. You know, cool. Yeah. I mean, he had Bernie Sanders on. He had Tulsi Gabbard on. He had people who, like, you know, uh, are quite liberal. So I don't, I don't know what exactly people want. He endorsed, he endorsed Tulsi and Bernie at separate points. Yeah. So I don't know. I don't know what, uh, you know, I, I don't hear criticism of him from the right. I don't know what. Yeah, I'm, but I'm sure there is. Like, Crowder's another interesting one where he'll bring out things and people where it's just like, all I'm into really is the conversation. I know people, the Ooh. thing that fascinates me the most, uh, Crowder, I think his name is. I used to call him first. Chowder, but, but that's not his name. Who was his first name? Uh, he's the dude that says, uh, like, you know, oh, gay rights or blah, blah, blah. Challenge me, kind of thing. He puts up, he sets up a desk at like campuses, and and students like, oh, you, you oh, can't believe. And he's like, well, I'll sit down, and let's talk about it. And he's like, oh, all right. And then, you know, like that. I've seen a number of those, and those are interesting. I don't know. Like, I never get so far. Like, when the word conservative or liberal or anything gets like dropped, I usually step out of the room because that stuff. I don't know enough. Maybe when you're to, watching Steve. I think Stephen Crowder's pretty much in the conservative camp politically, I thought. I, mean, I, don't, I, don't, I don't care. I don't know. But I, don't, I, I but I like I the, 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 the platform he makes for this conversations. I think that's what I like about Jordan Peterson or people that's, who are... But no, but that's different, though, because Steven Crowder, I don't think Jordan Peterson, comparatively, has, has some sort of like agenda that he's trying to tell you, like, oh, this is the set of political views I agree with. That's, I think, probably why I, I respond to him is because, like, to me, yeah. like, I look at liberal ideas and conservative ideas as, yeah, it's all part, like, we get all, we can find things that we agree with that we like in the whole range of ideological spectrum. Like, we shouldn't just choose one group right. to associate with. We should be like, what are the best ideas? I don't care who has them. I care what the best ideas are. Yeah. And both, both, political ideologies have pathological flaws to them. They're very different pathological flaws, but they have pathological flaws to them. And so it's like we have to be wary about those those flaws. Um, so I look at it from the standpoint of like, okay, you know, both of these things have issues, but like what are the good ideas out there, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh... So politics is... is very unproductive. I I have not met anybody who is super politically engaged. That their political engagement makes their life better, or they they help anyone, or save anything. Like it seems like political engagement uh, is a waste of, of most ordinary people's time. Unfortunately. Well, and, you could say uh, that, but I, I mean, when's the last time you went to a soup kitchen? You know, I'm pretty sure they have like really nice people there who are super political. I think the thing is, to me, they're yeah. Like, but wait a second. Uh-oh. Are they there because they're political, or are they there because they're the kind of person who works at a soup kitchen? I wonder. You're just, you're just as likely to find somebody who is apolitically, yeah. you know... that's true. Maybe it's a religious thing. Maybe it's just a, uh, a, a, a secular, humanistic, compassion thing. Just as much as you want to find somebody who's, like, there because... They're a hardcore right-wing Christian conservative, or they're a die-hard, you know, progressive. Like people do charity for all sorts of reasons, it, and and if they're political, they're political.
base political, right? Yeah. No, what I'm saying is that we have we just have a culture where people think that if you espouse political views, you're somehow helping somebody. And I have not seen evidence of that in my life. That's all I'm saying. I'm saying that the things that I've seen in life that help people have to do with being being a good person to others, being friendly, being a good friend, uh, being there for people when they have problems, encouraging people to try in life, um, enabling people to try in life. That That's done more for me than any sort of political sort of yeah flag waving any of that yeah 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 some scary stuff happening out there let's uh let's stray away from the subject of politics and go back into uh to movies um martin scorsese and living legends like this what do do you have like a a fear that like they're not going to be able to make more stuff or do you ever just like think like we're lucky just to have what they what they're giving us like uh, what do you mean make more stuff? What are you talking about? Some people are like, oh man, I hope you know Tarantino makes another three movies or, or conversations like that. I think he falls under the category of living like legends in the sense that there's are people from the you know heyday of, of Hollywood, sort of like you know working still. But I don't know. Like Martin Scorsese is pretty a pretty old man. Yeah, I mean, I don't really, I don't really think about it in those terms. I guess. Yeah, I guess. I, so. I think the thing that, as a filmmaker myself, I think the thing I worry about is just that, like, the the whole, like, movie world seems to be controlled by old people, like, who get to get carte blanche, and, like, in the 90s, in the 70s, when you were, like, in your 20s or in your 30s, there were opportunities for you to do whatever the hell you wanted, and now it's, like, it's not like that anymore, so that that's... I have the flip flip side concern, like, you know what I mean? Like, I mean, how many filmmakers who are doing, like, really exciting work were born after 1980? Um, it's like, it seems like the, the, the generation, you know, um, the, the, the newer generation kind of has been stifled by a culture where, like, the people who, who had it best have kept it for themselves. Yeah. Mortality doesn't bug you that much in terms of uh, other people? I mean, okay, let me put it to you this way. Stanley Kubrick died at age 70. Martin Scorsese is, what, 78 now? Min 77, something like that? Like, he's, he's, you know, if he he were to die tomorrow, I hope he doesn't. If he were to die tomorrow, he's lived a full life. It's not as though we're going to be like, oh, you know, he really didn't make enough movies. It's like he's made tons of great movies. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Like he's, he's, he's old enough. Uh, Tarantino has said for years that he was going to quit. After, after a movie. set number, yeah. That's fine. I, I get it. He, he had this thing where he he had these filmmakers like uh, like Billy Wilder and Howard Hawks who he doesn't like their final movies. So he's like, I don't want to make a bad movie. And it's like, well, bro, you already made Death Proof. So, you know. <laughs> right. I watched this movie Deerskin and they mentioned... Uh, I've heard this theory before, where they like someone cut uh, Pulp Fiction into in order, like they put it all all the scenes in order, and they're like the movie sucked. I don't know how that would work, but I imagine putting everything out of order made something like not uninteresting, but something just like plain more interesting. Uh, I mean, scene for scene, it has a lot of great scenes, so I don't think I don't think it's like right. Well, that, yeah, that, well, that makes me, me wonder. This way. Let me put it to you this way. Yeah. Let's take another movie. You know what I mean? Like, take The Godfather and 
and, and reorder the timeline. It might suck too. Like Right. Walter Murch apparently had a lot. Stories, yeah. stories are a series of events. So when you put the series of events in a particular order, it's because you're structuring that, that story for the maximum impact. So if you reorder it, it changes the impact. Yeah. Well, it made me consider, like, what what made Tarantino so great in the first place. And it's just like, well, I know I've heard the, the idea that, like, people don't talk the way they talk in movies. Like, you just got me onto, uh, uh, back into The Sopranos. I'm watching the pilot episode for the, maybe the fourth or fifth time in my life. But with the mission of, like, all right, I'm going to get through the show. It feels now, like a lot of the dialogue makes more sense now that I know that. Now that I know people don't actually talk like that. Uh, but it makes the, the whole story more interesting. Tarantino's great with dialogue. Uh, he, As much as Pulp Fiction, In Order, is a three-star movie, I'm a big fan of three-star movies. Like, movies that are just like, you know... Wait, how do you know it's a three-star movie? I don't. I have to presume. I mean, I guess it'd be interesting well, to watch every like that film. Have you even, like entertain the idea of watching Pulp Fiction in order? You know what I mean? I don't, I, I don't know that... It doesn't make any sense, because I, I saw it. I, I saw it in the way it was presented. I, I think it's like a futile exercise. Yeah. The dialogue and the scenes are great, so, I mean, I don't... It's, it's like... It's like you're kind of biased... You're kind of biasing the fact... You're, you're holding it against the film that it is non-linear when it's like... Well, you know, if you, I mean, if you make linear films non-linear, you know, it's just that's the way the story's told. I think it's a really great movie because of the way it's told. Yeah. And also the content, the scenes themselves, the characters, the the the, the, the events are great. So I, you know, I mean, the structure of it is the structure for a reason, right? So that, does that add to the greatness? Yes, but that adds to the greatness of every single great movie. Mm. Like, what I'm saying is, is that... No, yeah, I think I hear what you're if, saying. Yeah. Yeah. If you pulp fictionized other movies, well, they probably suck because they weren't meant to be pulp fictionized. Yeah. They were meant to be told linearly. Yeah. Well, that, that, it, it, what's interesting about what you just said is the idea of the feudal exercise. Like, I'm really into feudal exercises. I think my entire yes, life is dictated by that. Yes, we know. And well, this... <laughs> This you know better than I might. Well, we, just, we just found your epitaph. Cuauhtémoc Germán Tapia, a feudal exercise. Uh, oh, I'm really into feudal exercise. <laughs> you know, somebody could read that and go, oh, he's talking about life, you know? So there you well, go. here's the thing, I guess, that I'm getting at. At what point is an exercise, like, not feudal? Like, um... The way you talk about movies sometimes, it doesn't sound like uh, experimental film would at all fit into your 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 your, your idea of a, of a great film. Let's call it. But there's been a lot of name dropping throughout my relationship with you, where you're just where it just out of left field. You're like, yeah, Gummo's one of the greats, or Tarkovsky is one of the greats. Like, wait a minute, I thought you said, well, I can't. Where does a exer- like an uh, an experiment become interesting to you? Like what? What makes... How are those... What do you mean experiment? I mean, Gummo, I guess, is like a... It's a collage movie, and it's like... There's no traditional narrative to it, but every Tarkovsky movie is a narrative. Yeah, but it's so... 
I don't know. Is there something about it that yeah, says well, it's not like like well, like heat, sure. you know, or it's not like something uh, Hollywood would produce, well, I, you know? You think that heat and you think that Michael Mann and, and Andre Tarkovsky are doing different things? I know deep in my heart that they're doing the exact same thing. They are yeah. expressing visions that come from within. That is all yeah. they're doing. They're doing the same thing. Just because Michael Mann uses uh, uh, shabby cop dramas to express it doesn't mean he's any different than Andre Tarkovsky who, who uses highfalutin, you know, sci-fi scenes. There's, it's the same thing. They're doing the same thing. They're visionaries telling a story using the medium of film. That's it. Yeah, but whereas Tarkovsky would talk about poetry, I think Michael Mann would, wouldn't. You know what I mean? You have not listened to enough Michael Mann. Maybe that's Mann true. is one yeah. of the most... Like, that dude is... He'll talk about... Like, if you if you listen to him talk about his movies, yeah. he talks about architecture, he yeah. talks about design. Like, apparently, when he made Miami Vice, he kept, like, redesigning the city because it wasn't up to his standard of how... Of, like, color theory. And, like, he is very interested in visual poetry at least um so i i think you're just you're just yeah. from a place of bias and uptightness um is would be my point on that no i think that i think that um futile exercises like you know you can watch experimental films that sometimes get to a thing that's interesting to me it depends on the experiment it depends on the filmmaker it depends on the craft of that filmmaker um you know i mean i think that a great film is not a futile exercise, no matter how experimental or conventional it is. If it's great, it's great. I don't see a need to care about the the um, purported, you know, uh, presentation of a story. All I need to see is, you know, something profound or beautiful or, you know, meaningful to me. That's it. And there's nothing futile about profundity or beauty or, you know, meaning. Right. In my opinion. Right. Well, what'd you think of Bellatar? You know, I I watched Satan Tango, and yeah. uh, I mean, my thing about Satan Tango was that the first, the opening passage of it, really is something that's very beautiful and brilliant and amazing, and there's something to that. And the remaining seven hours seven plus hours you know it's cut rate Tarkovsky at times like he's definitely not you know doing anything new that's adding on to what Andre Tarkovsky did in terms of like his filmmaking style and then at times it's downright like just like he'll have a shot of people dancing for like 10 minutes and you're just like well this is just a guy who's screwing with me I mean he's just sort of like he's just having fun just have having this music loop over and over again with these people dancing and there's nothing of value to it after a certain point so he's kind of pranking me which I appreciate um, <laughs> but the shots that are like self-consciously beautiful in that Tarkovsky-esque way we're not really adding anything to the medium because somebody already did it better than him but the opening shot of the cows uh, what is something that I thought was going into you know, it's like this cosmic event concept that I think you saw in, I, I saw it in the New World, the opening of the New World, the first, you know, 20 minutes of that movie, which I think are some of the best, uh, you know, that's some of the best stuff ever. And there's a sequence in Once Upon a Time in Anatolia with, a, with an apple, I think, like falling into a stream that 
well, you know, it's like it's it's uh, it's like from Watchmen, um, Doctor Manhattan talking about uh, you know that he's witnessed events so small and so fat that it happened so you know they're so tiny and the, happened so quickly that you know no human could ever comprehend them. And I think about that in terms yeah. of like those kind of those kind of moments where it's like you know in 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 Tate and Tango with some cows walking and. Um, in the new world, it's, you know, uh, uh, people showing up on a new continent uh, for them. And um, uh, in Once Upon a Time in Anatolia, it's, it's an apple falling into a stream. And it's like these moments that really kind of only like, you know, we can only understand through the eyes of the universe, or if you want to call it God, you know, we can only understand from this sort of higher plane that these things have taken place. There is no consciousness within them that is as important as our our third party, you know, um, interpretations. Uh, our, yeah, our our witnessing of it is mm. important. Yeah, another name that comes to mind is Lev Diaz, but for some reason it's in a different context than Bellatar. Like Bellatar will seem a little more cinematic than Lev Diaz, which is really fucking with time, like the way Warhol would fuck with time, but then they're coming at it from different places and different times and space. What would even make it worthwhile? I know Love Diaz has pissed off one of our acquaintances. Uh, Umberto tried watching a, or wa saw a really like long Love Diaz movie and hated it and just loathed the notion. And Love Diaz is coming from a place of like, well, cinema is the only way I can express what it is I'm going through here. I mean, I haven't seen any Love Diaz movies. I guess I should. Would you be tempted to even like, the, or does it turn you off? This just like wait, sixteen-hour movie or something like this? Because I think it is absurd, like that. I mean, I'd probably say I probably look at. I mean, the way it is with any filmmaker, I'd probably say to myself, "Well, you know, if I haven't seen anything, let's hear. Let's see the one that everybody's talking about. Okay. Watch it. If I think there's something there, you know, maybe I'll watch some more." Um, Although that's gotten me in trouble, and it's always hard. It's, it's it is, hard. yeah. It's a hard game to play, because sometimes I will watch a movie that everybody says, this is this filmmaker's best movie, and I watch it, and I'm like, yeah, it's not that good, and then I realize everybody's wrong. It's like they're worse. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like really annoying. It's not like you don't like, get it. Would, it's that you get it, and you don't see their point right. Well, it's like, it's like I can't understand how anybody could watch Dario Argento's movies and think Suspiria is the one you have to watch first. It's the one you have to watch last. Watch all the dope stuff and then suffer through Suspiria. I mean, I, I haven't seen Suspiria in a while. Maybe I should rewatch and I'll like it now. But the point is, yeah, if you I see what you're saying. To Dario Argento, don't watch Suspiria. It has nothing to do with what he does as a filmmaker. Which one would you recommend first? Bird with the Crystal Plumage. I mean, it's funny. Literally every all the other ones are great to start with. Deep Red is great. Um, Opera is, has some amazing stuff in it. You'll just see what he does that's so cool. Tenebra is amazing. Like he just it's uh, Suspiria is this weird kind of like riffy movie he made. His other movies are much more just like straightforward giallo. Yeah. yeah. You know. A narrative, essentially, whereas Suspiria is very abstract. I mean, I liked it, but I don't know that it was my first uh, Dario Argento, but it was definitely the loudest, that's for sure. Yeah, so I just I think that uh, that happens where it's hard to sometimes figure out which is the best movie 
realize that I have a strange taste in that filmmaker's movies, like John Cassavetes. I think Minnie and Moskowitz is his masterpiece. Nobody tells you to watch Minnie and Moskowitz first. I get why they don't, but like that's the, I'm not watching John Cassavetes for the same reasons as other people, I guess, so right. whatever. Right, but in a sense you are, because you're watching movies to watch movies, isn't it? No, you're watching, you're watching movies... I'm not, I'm, I'm watching John Cassavetes, I'm watching any movie because I want to like it. Right. You know? So it's like, I, if somebody told me, you know, oh, you're watching, I'm not going to like movies for the reasons that people claim to like John Cassavetes. So I, I, the thing I like about John Cassavetes is the fact that he has a very similar kind of, uh, uh, Thing with the way I was brought up where everybody expressed themselves through shouting and <laughs> you know, talking too much right and so that's what I respond to yeah you know and when you try to when you try to make a movie like that and have it be sort of powerfully dramatic in a sense I'm not really going to respond to that as much as if you make that fun and funny like the reason I like Minnie and Moskowitz is the same reason I like Silver Linings Playbook and I talked about this with my sister, where the thing that I responded to about Silver Linings Playbook is that the entire movie, everybody is yelling at each other, but they all get along. And that is what I respond to. I see. In my, in my, if I talk to my parents, if you overhear me talk to my parents, you think we're having an argument. I get along great with them. It just sounds like we're arguing. And that's yeah. what Rolling Playbook is like, and that's what Minnie and Moscow is like. It's great. I love that element of it. Whereas in Woman Under the Influence, it's more about the problems. And I'm like, no, no, no I want, there's no, uh, there's no dynamism to that idea. Minnie and Moscow, it's like, it's about, you know, it's like a fairy tale type of movie. And I think that that's, that's yeah. what it's to. That's a very subverted fairy tale. That's an interesting too, uh, thing, too, though. When I was watching Minnie Mo Moskowitz, by your recommendation, uh, I was sort of like, okay, these guys are yelling each other. They're clearly upset. And it's like, no, that's not what's going on at all. Necessi oh, not at all, but necessarily. Like, I've, maybe because I didn't grow up in New York, so I don't have that intense, like, you know, uh, dealing with other people like that. But I get that idea of like, yeah, it sounds like we're fighting, but we're not fighting. And I might have learned that from movies or real life. I'm not sure. But it is an I mean, underrated aspect of, like, people that I think goes unappreciated in movies. Where people can be just sort of grating at each other, but this is the way they are. And they, they get along, you know, and this is how they get along. I wonder if it's an East Coast, West Coast thing, but it's also like... Yeah, me too. I want, yeah. maybe, maybe, maybe it's an East Coast thing. I do, I do think it has to do partially with like, you know, Casavetti's is Greek, his family's Greek. So you got Greeks, Italians, Jews, right, you right. know. Those are, these, are, these are people who are very comfortable with yelling at each other. And yeah, I, I Mexican cinema too. Like old Mexican cinema is just like that. People are yelling and always drinking tequila. And this is like, this is how intense they have to live because this is what living is. Whereas like, you know, I guess I could call it LA life, but I don't know what I'm talking about necessarily. But LA life would be a lot more subdued, a lot more chill, a lot more let's get along. And if we don't, well, we can walk away. Like, you know, placid maybe. Which is a dangerous word. Yeah, but, yeah. It's, yeah, it's no. I think it's true. It's, it's something that you know. I I remember when I first moved here, people would say, "It's so cool how you just say what you mean." Yeah, it's like, yeah. It's like, why don't yeah. you do that? If yeah, that's a very strange thing. It's a weird thing 
Yeah. I'm watching The Sopranos again. Um, I mentioned already. Uh, did you ever... Did you, you? I don't know how it dropped into your life. Because I know you weren't my age when it came out. I was just a boy. No cable. Uh, you, were, you were probably a man when it came out at that point. Uh, NYU, I presume. I don't know. No. 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 I was sitting with my father. Uh, uh, and... You know, we were watching something on HBO, and we were or we were waiting for something to start on HBO. And we saw a trailer for The Sopranos, and at the end of at the very end of the trailer, it said, "You know, series premiere, right?" Yeah. And my father and I both go, "That's a TV show? Like it looked like some sort of like really, really mediocre good stuff is rip off." And then it was like, they're going to make a show out of this? This is a terrible idea. And so, you know, but it's Italians, it's in New Jersey, right by me, like literally right by me. The house was 10 minutes from where I grew up. And so, you know, I would just, I, I was watching a lot of TV in those days. I think it was, it was January 99, so that was like my uh, junior year, maybe my sophomore year even, so... You know, I started watching it in, in high school, and, um, you know, uh, it became a, a cultural phenomenon in the first season, even. And, of course, I'm in an area of the country that's very very open to films, or, you know, stuff about Italians in North Jersey, because I'm an Italian in North Jersey. So, that was a big part of, of, you know, my high school years was how great that show was. And then... I sort of went away from it for a little bit, partially for the production schedule of the show, because season one ended uh, in right before, you know, a few months before 9-11. I go to college at NYU, 9-11 hits, everything's crazy, and then uh, the Sopranos season four, I think, was like maybe like a year after 9-11 or several months after 9-11. And so it was like this funny thing of just like, you know, it, in between season three and season four, a lot had happened. I'd gone to college and, you know, this huge national event had happened. And uh, so I didn't, I was slow to pick up with season four. Um, and yeah, so, and it was very, it's a very different show by the end of the show. Like, it's just, that is, that is a television show that went from being part of television in the late 90s to inventing prestige TV in a way that is so crazy to think that, you know, now you watch television shows and they have these crazy narrative things and blah, 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 didn't exist until The Sopranos did it. You know what I mean? It wasn't even a conception yeah. until The Sopranos did it. So it just changed the, the concept of the medium fundamentally, uh, which is was crazy to watch happen. Yeah, I mean, it's absurd to witness, but it's a weird concept to even grasp that there was, like, mm, I don't know, like, The Singing Detective, like, for example. That was a gritty fucking show, but that wasn't a common thing here in America, was it? I mean, The Singing Detective versus The Sopranos is weird because it's sort of like, The Singing Detective is more like a long movie. Yeah. Well, Isn't Sopranos? The Sopranos can be seen as a long movie, but the problem is that when you get to season four and you see what they start doing or what they're, they're developing, what they're building off 
watching something bigger that's more sprawling, that's doing something stylistically that, like, you know, like you just never know where it's going to go kind of thing in, in the style of it and the presentation of the stories. And right. so it, it just gets so much more, uh, so much stranger than anything the singing detective did. Uh, it's not the... No, they're completely different things. I mean, they're coming from different places anyway. Like, one's a BBC I, production, I, I'm pretty sure. But, but let me say this. That uh, Vincent Canby, who was the um, film critic for the New York Times, right. I think into the early 90s even, uh-huh. he, he, just, you know, he was just writing random criticism uh, uh, at, in, when The Sopranos came, in, came out. He was doing more like, you know, occasional think piece kind of thing. And he wrote an article about The Sopranos after season one. That's an article I think about all the time, actually. And he talks about how The Sopranos season one belonged to the genre of the mega movie. And he uses The Singing Detective. And he uses Reiner Werner Fassbinder's uh, Berlin Alexander Platz, which I should still, maybe I should read the novel and watch the series. Um, I think also, I don't know if he brought it up, but Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, the Alec Guinness version, also applies. Okay. But he was just talking about how there's this massive narrative, this, this mega movie narrative in season one. And it's funny how quaint the mega movie concept is for The Sopranos when, by the time you get to the end of the show. You know, because it's like so much more than a mega movie by that point. It's really crazy, towering work that has really nobody's even approached. Right. Well, people talk about world building. It sounds like Sopranos went ahead and universe built, which is like, it's been done, but it's not a very, sort of like the way Terry Pratchett or or fucking, I don't know, like people who talk about, oh, this takes place in the same... Terry Pratchett? Who's that? He's a British uh, writer. He wrote, I don't want to call them children's books, but he wrote like young adult maybe books. And then he did this whole concept of this world. I've, it's been a while, so I don't remember what he calls it, but everything takes place on the back of a turtle, like a universe spiraling over the back. Oh. It's it's well, it's, think that... it's nutty, but I think what it is more than that is like it's it's silly and like purposefully silly. So it's on like a Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy kind of like material, you know? Right. I think the thing about that's crazy about the Soprano is that yeah, the the the. The universe it inhabits, yeah, one that is supremely recognizable to me. Well, yeah, yeah, that's how we started on the. Go ahead. Eerily so. So yeah. it's like it's kind of this thing where it's like, you know, it's not like oh we're going to planet Ingblot where you know the 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 nurse people live. You know, it's not this arbitrary kind of mythological nonsense. Right. That is the reason that you know I remember. I remember uh, uh, when Lord of the Rings started coming out, and I would watch the movies, and I was just sort of be like, okay, you know, it's Lord of the Rings, whatever, I don't know. And I kind of felt like a little alienated. I just didn't understand why, like, because people loved this, these Lord of the Rings movies. Yeah, you know I, mean? I remember that. I never got into it for that reason, just because it's like, uh, I, don't, I don't want to be those people. <laughs> right. And, then I, and I remember I, was, I saw something where uh, Tom Hanks was like, oh yeah, those Lord of the Rings, I don't get those movies. It seems like somebody's typewriter got stuck. stuck. And you know, you got Voldo and, Voldo and Jingy going up a mountain. I don't care. I was like, thank God. I feel so relieved yeah. that like, yeah. somebody expressed, and it's Tom 
Tom Hanks, so it's like he's right. expressing it. When he, he's not the type to express controversial things. So I was like, he's expressing something so, you know, like I couldn't conceive of thinking of it that way, but I was like, thank God, that's a relief that it's like I'm not alone. And ever since then, I realized, you know, the love for Lord of the Rings, love for Star Wars, to whatever degree I might like it myself, Yeah. I, um, I, you know, at least recognize that it's in a, it's in a box of being like, you know, pretty whatever, you know? Yeah, I mean, you. Yeah, I get. I got to take other people's ideas like with a grain of salt. Like Breaking Bad is a good example. I don't th- see me watching that show, but it doesn't have the same sort of weight that Sopranos has. Sopranos, every time it's named after, I think, oh, you know what? I should get to the end of that. What The Wire is one. I, it was you know another one because I got like to season three and I was like, oh, I'm interested to seeing it. But Breaking Bad, like I have little to no interest, and it's in that Lord of the Rings category. Say again. Which one did you get to season three? Uh, the Wire. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think uh, Breaking Bad, I watched three seasons, and I think the problem I had with Breaking Bad, when I rewatched, I think I rewatched maybe into season two, possibly, mm-hmm. recently, and I realized that the whole show trades upon your interest at first in him setting up this business, and I, I realized it's a really cheap narrative gambit to get me interested, and I really just saw the cheapness in it and rejected it. And right. I, okay, you know, I don't. It's this kind of it's this idea of these cliffhanger notions of like yeah, oh, it's like just constant. And the Sopranos no aggressively yeah. and sad at times where it's just like listen, you're just gonna watch stuff now, and you gotta figure it out, and it's not on us, it's on you. Well, and so it's this uncompromising kind of... Well, that, but also the depiction of people. Like, I remember uh, growing up, I grew up with my, my, my cousin here. He's a little older than me, but we went to high school around the same time. He was living in the same room as I, and we were watching. We would watch stuff on his PlayStation. I would, we, would, we would acquire things and put them on the uh, USB drive and put it on... So we watched a lot of stuff together, you know, a lot of anime shows and stuff like this. Nip Tuck was one of the things, I don't know how we happened to fall upon it, but it's like, this is a good show, let's watch. And it's like a soap opera kind of thing, where I can't enjoy it unless someone else is enjoying it with me. Like, on my own, this is kind of like... So we got pretty far in that show. When Breaking Bad came along, it felt like that, but the but the room was lacking my cousin. So it was just like, I don't have any interest in watching this. I get that Brian Cranston is incredible, but I knew that before this. Like, there is nothing new coming out of me, which felt like, yeah, it felt weird because you're the only one thinking and everyone's like, oh, but Breaking Bad and all this. I think I, le- I like to leave a little leeway between when something comes out and then when I get to it. But Mandalorian kind of, oh, wait, I'm getting straying away from the subject. Uh, the thing oh, that, the, the thing that, Sopra- hold on, before I forget it, though, Sopra- the thing that Sopranos has is the intensity of the characters. Even when I first tried watching it, the the um, Edie Falco character makes me feel so fucking like emotional, like just like ah oh, god, like that, and that's hard to pin down with other shows. Like there's not that many characters that make me feel like that. Like off the bat, when they come on screen, I'm just like oh god, what's like that emotion, that searing emotion, is really great about The Sopranos. That I think, yeah. I but, mean, what's interesting about you saying that is that. That's interesting that you're seeing that in her performance and her character when they, the, the, the depth that 
Okay. I've been, and I'm currently watching The Sopranos with somebody who hasn't seen it. Okay. And he's a big he's a big film guy, and it's been really interesting for me to rewatch it through the eyes of somebody who's never seen who who cares about film, but who's never seen this. And like, it's it's I'm so much more aware of the character arcs in terms of like watching. You know, oh, I know what's going with that character. It's crazy what they do with that person. You know what I mean? Like, it's so interesting to think uh, like that you're picking up on something that they really delve into in this really fascinating way. And that as I watch, I see how well they are developing this element of her as it goes along. You know what I mean? Sure. I mean, well, I've only ever gotten to like, what, episode eight or something in season one. I'm not sure where. That's why I'm start. I'm always starting from scratch. But... Yeah, the I quality like is so don't. good. Like, it's well shot. The writing is fucking, like, interesting as shit. Like, it's a very... Like, well, one of the things that I'm getting now that I couldn't have before is how a lot of the stuff that will go over my head back then, I won't go over my head these days. So I get the undercurrent of what's going on. Like, this, the subtext, the... You know, the little glances and things mean more now than they used to when I was a boy, maybe. I would call it that. I mean, I wasn't it's a boy. It's also very, very funny. It's also it is. one of the funniest shows ever. Yeah, it's very funny. But it's, like, um, funny in a tragic sort of sense, which which I almost love even more when something's well, like... Well, I think it's also funny. The way it's funny is super unique, and I can't think of many things that are like this. Yeah. It's funny because they'll have characters do things that it's just like, oh yeah, that's like what a, that's like just a realistic portrayal of a human being. Yeah. And it's hilarious just because they're showing you how human beings behave. Yeah, some like, things can really capture the human essence in in a dramatic, well like compare this to like Orson Welles' fucking uh, Citizen Kane, right? You One of the things I liked about it was like, oh, it's so dramatic. But I see it now, and it's just like, oh, this is like play acting. It's not as dramatic as I thought it once was. Whereas, okay, wait. So I need to get back. To, I need to go back to something. Go ahead. Which is that you said you would would watch, you know, Nip Tuck with your cousin, and you know, it's kind of soap opera, and you and your cousin will really get into. I'm going to do that right now with uh, the show Gossip Girl. I, I'm watching Gossip right. Girl. With, and these are, these are things that this is a this is a sample thing with me watching Gossip Girl with my roommate. Uh, watching a scene, I pick up the remote control, I press pause, I turn, and I say, "I feel like Nate and Serena dating is going to redeem Serena." My roommate goes, "Totally, that's play." <laughs> like, you know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Certainty of it is like the best. Like every and she's constantly picking sides. But oh, she's such trash. You know, yes. you're just like yes. Yeah, and that's like the fun part of watching soap operas. Yeah. Um, yeah, the community yeah. aspect, the idea that like, yeah, that's yeah, something else to and it. I want to connect that back to what you're saying about Citizen Kane, which is that when you watch Gossip Girl, and Gossip Girl is is. It's pretty, I gotta say, like, I, it's, it's really hitting some really great stuff. Yeah. In the sense of, like, they clearly love David Lynch. They name drop a bunch of, like, really great stuff. Like, they talk about William Wyler's The Heiress in it. Like, they're talking about, like, really great, like, movies and books and whatnot. Yeah, I they love that. They definitely have a really good taste thing going on. 
A really good what now? Taste. Really good taste. Like the taste. writers sure. and the producers have really good taste. Yes. But, th- but it's more than that because yeah. clearly like when they light the show, like they use actors from Twin Peaks, which is great, and then they the way they light the show, they, they're like low-budget television, but it's like lit in this very self-consciously stylized way. And shot in a self-consciously stylized way that it's like oh they're doing they're telling you this is play acting and yeah. like, it elevates it and then like what they're also doing with one character is they're they're basically doing like a riff on um, American Psycho which I mean Christian Bale's performance in American Psycho I think is like you know Nicolas Cage in Vampire's Kid Al Pacino in like seven movies and uh, Christian Bale in American Psycho like in terms of like performances that I truly love. Yeah. That's about as good as get, you know? Yeah. Yeah, execution so, is everything. It's how the people it's, can like it's play at. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well it's how people can like lump the Sopranos and Breaking Bad into the same kind of show, but watching it, something about like the Sopranos, just a minute of it will be elevated a little bit higher than Breaking Bad. And I'm not sure why, like, like it's it's funny, I'm not trying to knock Breaking Bad, but it seems like The X-Files, where it, if I were to watch it, I feel like I would probably be entertained, but I wouldn't be intrigued to watch more. Uh, X-Files is totally different. I think X-Files is sort of like, uh, X-Files is like the shabbier, formulaic television stuff but I, I yeah. really get into. It's sort of like a Sherlock Holmes kind of thing, where it's like, they, they have this kind of universe and every episode plays out that universe very in a very formulaic way and sometimes that can be great. Well, that can be fun, right. Yeah. That's that's where I think, you know, Breaking Bad would be a positive, but uh, I don't know, yeah. I forgot where I was going to I just Breaking Bad, I remember I was talking to a certain friend of mine um, who you know, and I, I was watching Breaking Bad and there's something about it I wasn't quite responding to and I mentioned it to him and he just goes, ah, mediocre garbage. And I was like, okay, we have the Tom Hanks syndrome again. Somebody else is just like... Concurring. ...airing something that was in the back of my head about it. And I was like, okay, yeah, I'm done. I don't know. If people like it, great. You know, I, I there are plenty of people who I respect their opinion who think that show is absolutely brilliant. So, uh, you know, you never know. Same thing with like a movie like Midsummer. There's plenty of people I know who whose opinion I respect love Midsummer. I, I just don't like it. I don't know what to tell you. Yeah, some things I can easily shit on, and some things I have to put on hold. And I think, like, when I, after, when I got out of Midsummer, I remember thinking, I didn't like it, and it wasn't good. But I could respect what it was trying to do, and there was aspects of it I did like. But the person I was with really liked it, and they were like, oh, man, that was great. Like, I wouldn't use the word great. I might use the word good, but I would, like, you know, so... I do leave like a little bit of like blank area for how I feel about certain well, things. Certain well, things like Midsummer falls into that. Like you know, uh, Breaking Bad falls into that. But I think it has to do with who's tied to it. Like Breaking Bad's great because Brian Cranston, or Midsummer's great because the director. You know, or like there's always usually something hanging on to something. Like it's usually tied to something good. The reason why I can't shit on it, I think, is what I'm thinking. Well, it's also like that thing of like there are people out there who don't like the beach bum, and you know, like yes, I mean, that's those true. People can only be categorized as wrong. You can't. There's no. 
You see, I don't know that. Right, because there's a lot of sane people, I think, who would argue against that movie, and I'd respect them, but they'd have something else that would be good. That, you know. Listen, there are people out there walking around that don't like heat. They're walking around that don't like beach bum. I can only... I can only categorize those people as wrong. I have no... And I understand if somebody loves Miss Midsummer that much, they're going to tell me I'm wrong. Fine. So be it. Or Breaking Bad, you know, you're going to categorize me as wrong. But listen, if you don't like the beach bum, you're just wrong. I mean, I took my mom to see the beach bum, and she fucking loved it. Like, she was coming out of that... My mom? I took my mom to see the beach bum on the big screen, and she fucking loved it. Like, she came out of that movie with a smile on her face. She was like, ah, there were parts I didn't like, but oh. Like, she'll... And I'm sure if I took her to see Midsummer, by the end of it, she'd be like, no, that's that's not for me. Beach bum is universally, like, in my opinion, good. I just don't, you know, if people don't like it, I don't know what to tell them. You know right. what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, some things are just beyond words. That's just the wrong thing. You're just wrong. You need to change, you need to fundamentally change as a human being and decide that the beach bum is right. Like, go to therapy, figure it out. You're the problem if you don't like that one. You know? Listen, Peter, it's been about an hour. Uh, I'm really happy you gave me an hour of your time. I would love it if you came back to this uh, so-called show, quote-unquote, uh, in about a few months' time. Uh, would that be great? Would that be good? Sure. What are you, you're only allowed to do an hour. You don't want to do any more? Uh, we can do a little more, but uh, I don't... I don't uh, yeah, sure. All right. Well, there's a million things I want to talk about. So if, if, uh, if you have another, uh, another hour, that'd be, uh, that'd be phenomenal. I don't, nobody's going to want to listen to a two-hour podcast. You think not, but I've already put out like a two-hour podcast, so I don't, I don't have a limit. My limit is for other did people. Anybody, did anybody listen to it? You know, it's funny. There's levels. I'm not sure if there's like people from other countries like hacking into it and just like throwing numbers because I'll get like, okay, you got two listeners from U.S. and like one from Finland. And I'm like, oh, that, that doesn't add up. Or like, you know, a number of them from like Canada or I don't know how it works, knowing, frankly. Knowing you, knowing you, you had some, you had, I can't remember the name of this podcast, but you had some weird, you have some like weird name or word or abbreviation that means something very like, you know, yes. in Finnish. And so in Finland, they're like, oh, oh. Well, you know? I see. Okay. Th- you went another way with it. Uh, you, so you're on this, <laughs> so you're on this, uh, quote unquote podcast. I think it's more of a broadcast, uh, to nowhere, but, uh, you're on this thing. You don't know what it's called. No, you know, I'm just living free, man. That's hilarious. That's really Timo, funny. Timo's podcast. That's yeah. I mean, I'm pretty sure, frankly, I think that's what everybody else calls it. Yeah. Timo's podcast. So that's fine. I, you know, uh, con, concupiscent den, den. Uh, that one you remember. Net worth, uh, you know, I don't know, man. You know? Gringo Nation, man. Gringo Nation. That, wait, is this Gringo Nation podcast? <laughs> yes. Yes, it is. Wow. I didn't know that it expanded. You, you expanded the brand. Well, it's, 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 uh, it's an... It's homework that I can't sit down to do, so I'm doing it this way. Like, it's uh, it's an essay I'm supposed to write, but you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to do stream of consciousness for about an hour. Like, this is what that is. I made a zine of it thinking, oh, it's a concept cheerleader that'll come out in the zine. It didn't, and I'm ashamed of the zine. I'm doing it like this because I figure, okay, the, um, the, the episodes, if you 
coalesce them, they'll make up the concept of Gringo Nation. Because, frankly, I don't know where it begins and ends with me. Okay, so this is what's going to happen. I'm Googling Gringo Nation podcast. Well, okay? no, Google Gringo Nation because some interesting things come out by that. Well, no, no, but I'm, I'm saying we're All right. very meta here. So All right. your father was on? Yes. That was episode 10. Yes. Who was episode 11? I don't know Omar Romero. He's in a band. Uh, uh, that one's uh, uh, tied into the Eddie uh, podcast because they're both in a band uh, together. Robert, I don't think I know. Sam is uh, from Lumiere, right? Yes, yeah, Sam is Lumiere and Networth, that's right. And then Katz is Monsi? That's Monsi, that's right. Uh, Christian, okay. He's, he's, a, he's a Limley alumni. He hasn't worked at Lumiere yet, I guess. That's right, yeah. Uh, let's see what we got here. We got uh, Mike Soto. I don't know Mike. He's in another band. He's in. He's another. He's actually a photographer that I, that I'm uh, that I want to collaborate with filmically, but we'll we'll see how that goes. He's got a great eye. I I don't know, I don't know Marco Antonio. He's my neighbor. That's uh that was a, the idea where it was like you know what I just want to talk to anyone who I wouldn't normally talk to. Uh, and so that was like when I was getting my bearings to do this whole uh, this whole uh, thing. I was like I'm gonna talk to that neighbor because I never talked to that guy. And uh, so that's what that one. That one's like the only episode. It's, it's wholly in Spanish. So like that one's got fewer listens than the two-hour one. Uh, we got Brian Tishnell, my good friend. He's wonderful a man. Good actor too. Yes. Um, and then we've got uh, Eddie Ramirez, who I don't know. He's tied into the Omar Romero episode. Uh, okay. So that's it. That's, did I miss anybody? I don't think so. You're, you're reading it. You're reading the list. So I'm pretty sure that's everybody. I don't have that many episodes. Do they? Um, no, I guess it looks like you have 11. Yeah, you're on season two, so, you know, there you go. I love it! Season two! Great. Episode two, season two, man. Yeah, every 10th episode is going to be, like, my father or my mom. I'm not sure who the uh, the 20th one is, but uh, I'm trying to make every 10th one, like, a series finale, kind of like, all right, this is a big one. And I think uh, one of the big people in my life that I don't really talk to is, is probably my father. Fair enough, man. Um, all right. Well, I guess that, that we we've discussed the podcast. I guess I guess you were. I guess it's been an hour, so we'll end it. I guess you know. I'll come back and talk for another hour. I mean, there's a million things I want to ask you, but uh, 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 uh well, yeah. Well, I think I think it does make sense. You know, one hour increments. But I get it now. I mean, I got the notion from you, but it's a very smart notion that you know you don't want to push the envelope too hard. All right, Pete. Uh, thanks for. Do you have any final words before you, before I let you go here? Um, you know, stay safe out there. Um, you know, I think that uh, you know if you're if you're thinking about something that you want to do, you got to just do it. You know, you can't you can't wait for life to happen. You have to jump in and do it. You have to try, and don't be afraid to try. Don't be afraid to just do the thing you really want to do. And, um, you know, be bold uh, and don't give in to fear. You know, there's like this concept of there's the good wolf and the bad wolf. You want to feed the good wolf. And the good wolf is, 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 is going forth with, uh, with courage and strength and stamina and resolve to, to, to pursue that which, um, which fulfills you. So th- 
All right, Pete, thanks a lot, man. Uh, it was good having you. I'll have you again. Okay, thanks, man. All right. Uh, I guess I'm going to hang up here. Okay, bye-bye. All right, man, take it easy, bye.